Amen. The fundamentals. Um, Whenever I think of the fundamentals, I think of when I was a kid on uh, our little basketball team when we were probably eight. Uh, Do you remember that, Dan, the ones with the yellow shirts, the ones where we lost every single game? This over the last one, and then at the last one, my mom sewed little number one ribbons on all of our shirts. I had good parents, man. My dad was the coach of the basketball team. And I remember that in this season of life, I mean, you had like MJ and Magic and, and Dr. J and all these uh, basketball players. That It became the season or the, the time where you really started seeing the all-star athletes come out. It wasn't just, you know, passing the ball and giving goes and screens and foul shots. Now it was, you know, amazing players doing amazing things. And there was actually a team that we played as eight-year-olds that had this one kid who was really good and so the strategy of that team was essentially everybody else get out of the way and just let that kid run in and score that's like how they won every single game but that's not how my dad taught us it was the fundamentals it was passing and defense and all these things and it wasn't good enough just just to have one good player on the team you wanted everybody on the team to know what they were doing everybody understand the fundamentals in the game and honestly when you watch these all-star athletes these days the reality is the teams that win championships have more than just one good player they have a bunch of players playing together and if you know the fundamentals of basketball you can see that they're using the fundamentals of basketball There's no tricks. You just don't come in with a bunch of tricks copying what you saw on TV. These guys are trained professionals that know all the fundamentals of how they need to get together to be strong and work as a team. Yeah, there's no tricks. You can't, you know, you got to understand these things. And and working as a team is what makes it all work. Because teamwork makes the dream work. I think Maxwell says that. It's a Maxwellism, but it's always fun to bring those rhyming things out sometimes. So tonight we're talking, uh, we're starting in the book of Romans. Um, and this is where, yeah, the book of Romans. It's a good one. It's a good one. This is how we're starting. This is, it will probably be in here for a few years, honestly, because it'll take that long. Um, but in the book of Romans, Paul is focusing the listener on the basic fundamentals of the Christian faith. Um, It's explaining God's truth and how it applies to our lives. That's why it's such a great book. Uh, The reality is, I mean, if you look at this, it's all-encompassing. I mean, probably the most useful book in the Bible. It covers everything from our human condition to how we deal with the world's problems and failures and all of that in the context of our new life in Christ. If there's something you're looking for in the Bible, it's probably in Romans. If you're looking for a way, a way to address social issues and the community and grace versus obedience and things about sin and new life, old life, and all of that, it's probably in the book of Romans. You can find it there. Um, Martin Luther once said, uh, Romans is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much, and the more it's dealt with, the more precious it becomes, and the better it tastes. Is that a good introduction to talk about Romans on Wednesdays? It's exciting. So let's get into the verses. Romans chapter 1. We're going to go uh, verses 1 through 7 tonight. This letter is from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, chosen by God to be an apostle and sent out to preach his good news. God promised this good news long ago through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The good news is about his son. 
In his earthly life, he was born into King David's family line, and he was shown to be the Son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through Christ, God has given us the privilege and authority as apostles to tell Gentiles everywhere what God has done for them so that they will believe and obey him, bringing glory to his name. And you are included among those Gentiles who have been called to belong to Jesus Christ. I am writing to all of you in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his own holy people. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Pretty good opening to a letter. It makes me want to read more. Now, Paul's writing this letter uh, probably from Corinth at the end of his third missionary journey, about 57 A.D. Um, Now, the church in Rome, uh, so Paul hasn't been to Rome yet. He doesn't know them yet in person. He's been trying to go there. When you read the book of Acts, you can see like the whole time he's trying to make his way to Rome. But the church in Rome has been around for, you know, 20 something years because uh, what they believe is that on the day of Pentecost, Jesus had rose and the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit came down on all these people. A bunch of believers were created that day, like 3,000. So the idea is that there were people from Rome there on the day of Pentecost that saw the Holy Spirit come down and believe that Jesus was the was the Christ and the Holy Spirit had come and they brought this good news back to Rome with them. And so then over the course of 24, 25 years, there's been many house churches planted and created and a whole network of Christians created in Rome as the church of Rome. And they're known around. Paul knows of them and knows of their reputation. So they created all these churches um, because they brought the good news. Now, um, over this period of time, there's been some contention uh, that has grown between the two types of believers that are in Rome. So there were the Gentile Christian believers who have become the majority group. Why are they the majority group in Rome? Because one of the because uh, one of the Roman emperors uh, decided they they were going to kill all the Jews and cast them out of Rome. So all the Christian Jews got like murdered and thrown out of the city. So who's that leave? A bunch of Gentile Christians, right? They're the ones that are left. So as the Jews are starting to come back into Rome after that emperor had, had died, then now you still have a group of Gentile Christians and a group of Jewish Christians. They, they're both Christians. They both believe in Jesus, but they're coming from two different directions. And so you have these Gentile believers so the Gentile believers were not concerned with the requirements of the Old Testament and the law of Moses. I really feel like that was that it applied to them. It's not really their history. They're just kind of more focused on, um, you know, Jesus and grace and forgiveness and eternal life. The things that have come to them, not real concerned with the legacy um, and the history that came through the Jews. Um, they kind of looked down on the Jewish Christians a little bit for, for rejecting Jesus at first and then for being stuck on this religious stuff that Jesus was supposed to free them from. So that's their angle, the Gentile believers. And it's funny because when I talk about um, them being stuck on past and legacy and things like that, we have different kinds of believers in the church today. We have people who grew up in the church, the people who had a very strict kind of upbringing in the church, and then other people who came to church late in life who have no clue about what this thing was supposed to look like. Those kind of people feel really well into Faith and Victory Church because this is their first experience. They're like, oh, this is what church is like. This is great. And they don't have to unlearn a bunch of stuff that maybe they learned incorrectly or or any kind of bad habits. And it's funny because I I quoted Martin Luther earlier, and some of you might not even know who Martin Luther is. 
You might not know that, that he was responsible for the Reformation and the fact that we're all Protestants and the fact that, that we're even Christian believers that it is and not a bunch of Catholics. He was kind of the dividing point there. So that's a little bit of our church history. But that's okay. Now there's the other side. There was the Jewish Christian believers. And they're kind of the minority at this point. Um, they wanted the Gentiles to be obedient to certain aspects of the Old Testament law. It was important to them. They thought these things held true. They were still important. And they were kind of uh, irritated with the, the Gentiles that they wouldn't adopt some of these customs and, and important things that they were doing. They actually kind of looked down on the Gentile believers uh, because they were seen as undisciplined. And they didn't respect the roots of the faith and the tradition of God's people. These new Christian believers, they just disregard all this stuff that, that these Jewish believers had found sacred. Now they just kind of do whatever they want. Jews were the chosen ones, and that's a hard identity to shake when it's been your culture that you grew up with. That's how the Jews grew up. This is their culture, that they know that they were God's chosen ones. Set aside, set apart, the the special ones chosen by God. And now they're in a position where anybody can be God's holy one. And all these Gentiles, you know, coming later in the game, you know, with all this, you know, bravado and authority, kind of like, well... You guys don't seem to have any respect for the fact that we were chosen first. But if you think about it, you know, they they had their tradition set in the fact that they were saved because they were children of Abraham and the chosen ones. And following the law would make them righteous. Um, And when you're in a situation like that, Jesus can easily become just an addition to what it means to be a Christian in salvation rather than the focus of what it means. On the extreme end, the problem with the Jewish believer is not legalism. It's not that they want you to follow the law. It's exclusiveness. It's that they believe that they're the only ones. That's the extreme end of it, right? Because if you really dig down into the heart condition of where people are coming from, a lot of times the irritations and the rubs and things that bother people are deeply rooted in something completely apart from that. So if the Jewish believer is irritated with the Gentile believer for being undisciplined, it's altogether possible it's because they feel like they should be an exclusive group and not anybody should just be able to join the party. They were chosen. The Gentiles were late. How could they ever reach the full level of the Jews? But that's not entirely true. Let's look at Acts chapter 10, verse 34 and 35. Then Peter replied, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. In every nation, he accepts those who fear him and do what is right. So clearly, that extreme belief would be a wrong belief. But you could see where they might be coming from. Now, for the extreme Gentile perspective, the problem is grace without obedience. Knowing only a salvation by faith and not by works leads them with the freedom, uh, leads, gives them freedom without responsibility. They might say something like, well, you can't judge me. That's what the Bible says. You can't judge me. It doesn't matter what I do because grace wins every time. I can't out the grace of God. Have you ever heard people talk like that before? Yeah, it's misguided and not entirely true. Let's look at Romans chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. It says, well, then should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? And Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. Dear friends, if we deliberately continue sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer any sacrifice that will cover these sins. The Bible is pretty clear about the damaging effects of sin. 
Now, Jesus Christ died and the power of his blood covers any sin. But it doesn't cover you if you continue to sin knowing that you're doing the wrong thing. Do you see the difference there? It's a, it's a skewed perspective. Now, when Christianity became, uh, when Christianity becomes a cultural expectation and no longer an inner belief system, then it means it can be corrupted and misused. When it just becomes the culture you're in and not the belief system that you're adhered to, do you see the difference there? You know, in the United States, 50, 70 years ago, Christianity was the culture of the United States. And if you go to like the South now, people still go to church. Who's listening to me in real time? That's weird. It's awkward. Nobody likes to hear their own voice. But it, it was the culture. And so you can still see it in the South. Now, people go to church because that's what you do. People don't work on Sundays. Businesses are closed. They have dry days. They won't sell alcohol on Sundays because that's just what you do. It's not really the faith that they have. It's just the culture they live in. If you look at a lot of Spanish-speaking countries, they have uh, the... Um, uh, people colonize those areas uh, in, in the name of Christ and Catholics, right? And so there's a lot of Catholic religion out there in the world. But when you go there, it's not a Catholic religion built on uh, Christ. It's like more of a superstitious type, Catholic type religion where they, where they have the Bible and they have all the symbols, but they don't have it in a correct order. Like it's really not about Jesus. Jesus is more of a talisman to, to ward away demons. And they have like the Mother Mary is deified. She's, she's not a, a, a god. She's just a woman who God used, right? So you see those kind of things happen when you change and take away the fact that it's got to be an inner belief, not just a cultural expectation. So the idea of adding Jesus to your existing beliefs and culture simply waters down and it loses its purpose. So a lot of times what you see happen and in our culture today, in our culture today uh, is a culture of one of, of everything's okay and you want to adopt everything. So, and the culture of the Greeks was similar in terms of they had all their gods and all their histories and legends. And so then Paul comes and tells them about Jesus and they're like, yeah, Jesus sounds great. Add him to the pile. He'll just add him to, it'd be, he'll just be another god of all the other gods that, that we worship and, and pay homage to. And so, it really, in our culture today, you see something kind of similar where we take Christianity and we take Jesus, we take, we take grace and easy, easy believe in it, easy, easy, easy believism and salvation and say, yeah, we want that. What? Christ died for my sins and I can be forgiven and go to heaven? All I have to do is believe? Great. I'm gonna do that. But you don't want to give up those other things in your life and those other sins that are pulling you away. So that, that can't be the thing. So in, in, a, in a world of everything just gets thrown in the pot, Paul's drawing these people back to the fundamentals of the faith. So let's talk a little bit about the fundamentals of the faith. So the first one here is the good news. The good news that Paul is talking about is the gospel of salvation through Jesus. This is pretty much the foundational uh, thing of the book of Romans. It all comes back to the gospel and the good news going out to all people. So let's look at Romans chapter 1. Verses 1 through 4. This letter is from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, chosen by God to be an apostle and sent out or set apart to preach his good news. 
God promised the good news long ago through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And uh, the, the good news is about his son. In his early life, he was born into King David's family line, and he was shown to be the son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul's leaving no room for misinterpretation of his letter or of his purpose. He hasn't met these believers in person, but he's confirming right now that the truth that they believe as Christians is the same truth that he believes. He's kind of giving them credibility, like leading with the most important things. Like this is God. He promised the Messiah beforehand that that, that he was born in the line of David is Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. Almost like gathering together saying, are we on the same page here? Before we go forth, it's like the foundation, the fundamental foundation of where this letter is going. The good news is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are all sinners who need a Savior, that God promised long ago that one would come. Good news, Jesus is the Savior, the Messiah, who can forgive you from your sins and put you in a right right relationship with God. He matches all the descriptions from the Old Testament. That's what the Bible is saying. There is no uh, other way. This is the way. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 and 24. For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus, who he freed, uh, who, uh, Christ Jesus, when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. Uh, which is great. Um, but, but those kind of verses are the ones that can easily lead somebody down the road of like there's no responsibility on your end. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. But understand this, that uh, he freed us from the penalty of sin, but somebody had to take the punishment. Because the wages of sin is death. Wages are something you earn. A gift is something that's given. So we earn the wages of, of sin, which is death. Jesus took that death and paid that price and gave us freely salvation. What he didn't earn, or, or what we didn't earn, he gave us. Does that make sense? John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Pretty straightforward, right from Jesus' mouth. It's interesting, too, because there are some churches these days, and in their effort to blend things together and not make anybody unhappy, or, or better yet, just make everybody happy, there's actually preachers who say there's other ways to get to heaven. Which I think is just really bizarre to me because if you're a Christian, the book of the Bible is your truth. That's what being a Christian is. If you, if you say you're a Christian but you don't believe what the Bible says, then I don't think that you are a Christian. Because this, this, this is what makes you a Christian is understanding and believing what the Bible says. So if you hear a pastor of a gigantic church say something that there's other ways to heaven, but you got Jesus right here in the Gospel of John saying, I am the only way, the truth, the life, no other way except through me. Who's, who's probably right? I mean, Jesus said it first. The good news about Jesus Christ, or, well, I got one more verse. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Christ suffered for our sins once and for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the spirit. The good news of Je- that Jesus Christ involves these things, that you recognize that you're a sinner who needs a savior. 
That's the first step. Because honestly, what's the point in there being a savior out there if you don't think you need to be saved? And saved from what? Saved from sin. Saved from destruction. Saved from the wages of death. So if you don't believe that you're a sinner, if you don't think that you know, you've done anything wrong, that you need a savior, then how on earth will you be saved? And what would be the point? So first you have to recognize you're a sinner who needs a savior. You need saving. There's nothing you can do on your own about it. That's, that's where we start out. Believe that Jesus is that savior. That's the point. That's where the Bible gets you to. It's talking about all these ways that Israel tried and failed on their own. All these systems that God has set up for Israel to be successful that they failed at. It leads you to the New Testament and the point that Jesus is here and you can't save yourself. And you're going like, gosh, I've read the whole Old Testament. Yeah, they tried everything. They can't save themselves. It's to save you time. It's going to get you right to the point where you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I read the book. Yeah, there's nothing else that can be done. Oh, what, what if we tried? No, there is no try. They already did it all. That's why the history is important. I'm saving you some time today. There's no way you can be saved on your own. Jesus is the Savior. He's the only sacrifice for sin. You have to believe that. You need to repent of your sins and turn away from them and turn towards Jesus. You can't, you can't say that you're a sinner in need of a Savior and those sins bring you death. But then not turn away from those sins and repent and be forgiven. How can you be forgiven of something if you're not willing to repent of it? Right? You see how these things connect? That's why the easy believism doesn't really work. It can't just be, let me just walk through the sanctuary just sprinkling you with grace and you can walk away and feel good about yourself. I mean, there's steps to take here. Repent of your sins and turn away. And pursue a life guided by the Bible, which is the Word of God. That's the process here. You're a sinner who needs a Savior. Jesus is that Savior. Repent of your sins and turn away from them and turn towards Jesus. And pursue a godly life based on what the Bible has to say. That's the good news right there. That's Christianity. In a nutshell, I just like boxed it all up for you. St. Augustine said, if you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it's not the gospel you believe, but yourself. You hear what I'm saying? If you believe what you like in the gospel, but reject what you don't like, it's not the gospel you believe, it's just yourself. Just believe in what you think. Second fundamental is this. If you believe God, you will obey God, and that will bring him glory. If you believe God, then you will obey God, and that will bring him glory. Let's look at Romans chapter 1, verse 5. Through Christ, God has given us the privilege and authority as apostles to tell the Gentiles everywhere what God has done for them so that they will believe and obey him, bringing glory to his name. Paul highlights that believing in Jesus is more than words. It's a commitment to do what he says. Faith and obedience are not the same, but one does not occur without the other. Does that make sense? Being faith, having faith and being obedient aren't the same thing. But if you look at it, if you believe it, if you have faith in it, then why would your actions not follow? And, and, and if, you're, if you're, you have actions and behavior that's supporting something, it wouldn't make any sense unless you believed it to be true. So they're not the same thing, but you have to kind of have them together. If, if your actions aren't backing up what you say, then it's easy to say, I don't even think you believe what you're saying. 
Right? Self-reflection time. This is your moment where you're supposed to do a little bit of self-reflection. You should be striving for obedience to God's word and the call of Jesus on your life. If you aren't, why not? You should be striving for obedience to his word. If you aren't, why not? Do you, uh, do you not really believe the message of the gospel? Is that why you're not striving to be obedient? You just don't believe it? Or are you unaware of the obligation to live a holy life? If you're unaware of that, then start reading your Bible because it's fairly clear you have an obligation as a saved, uh, redeemed, holy one of, of Christ to live a holy life. It's pretty clear in the Bible. Or have you knowingly chose your own desires over God's desires? Or is there another one that's popping into your head? you got to think about it. What's the point in hearing a message like this without like internalizing it and thinking about, why am I not being obedient? What's my roadblock? You know, I remember when I was, I was probably like 18 or 19, I remember, I mean, I got saved. Well, so I grew up in the Methodist church. You grow up knowing all the church stories and things like that. And then about high school, we started going to this four-square youth group where they actually like preached and teach the Bible. And we learned that you have a, you know, you have to have a relationship with, with Jesus. And it was like, it just blew our minds. We, we all just sat there with our minds blown. But I remember sometime after that, sometime after high school, I remember having this moment where I say to myself, do you really believe what the Bible says is true? Do you really believe this? Because if you do, your actions have to start following that. So do you believe it? I'm like, yes, I believe it. I really believe it's true. Then it's like, well, then you have to change your life and start making your actions follow what you say you believe in. And that was like this come to Jesus moment, if you will, where I was like, you know what? There's enough of game time. Now it's time to be an adult and follow what I say I believe in. Because you really believe in it. So... The other part of it is how will the unsaved come to believe in the gospel? How will the unsaved believe that the gospel is true if the messenger doesn't even act like they believe it? Because it's bigger than you. I mean, if you say you're a Christian and you say, oh, you know, you tell your uh, your friends and your uh, co-workers, oh, I was at church or whatever, we got this men's advance coming up and you should come and things like that. And you're trying to tell them uh, about the gospel and the good news, but they don't see it in your behavior, your actions or your words. They don't see it when you guys are having uh, conversations and talking on your smoke breaks. They say, uh, he doesn't talk like he's any different. I don't understand. I, th- I thought this gospel was supposed to change lives. I've heard that somewhere. Uh, but it doesn't seem like it's changing lives. How is anybody going to believe God's message if the messenger doesn't even act like they believe it? It makes me think of things like doctors who smoke. It's been clearly established that cigarettes cause cancer. It's not being mean. It's just a fact. If you smoke, hey, it's your, it's your prerogative. But I'm pretty sure that everybody in this country who smokes know that it causes cancer and it makes you sick. Everybody knows that. So if you go see a doctor who's going out and you see him on a smoke break, you've got to ask yourself a question. He's supposed to be a doctor of medicine who's supposed to know things about how to keep you healthy, yet he's out there smoking. I'd have trouble believing what he tells me about my own health. It's something so basic, right? You know, can I tell you one of my hugest pet peeves? One of my hugest pet peeves is when firefighters park in the fire lane. 
Do you guys know what a firefighter sticker looks like on the back of a window? Like you see those stickers, it's usually red, and it's kind of a, it's a Maltese like this, and you see them on cars when you're driving around the rear window. Sometimes mine's silver, a little more low-key. Um, but that's a firefighter union sticker. So when somebody's got that sticker on their car, well, t- typically when I'm out there, it's their wife. I don't know. I don't, are they always at work? I always see the... <laughs> Nonetheless, they're a firefighter, right? So especially if you see like a big giant F-350 covered in diamond plate, bright red with a big sticker. Sometimes they'll have one on each side and like in the front. It's like they're not going to miss the fact that you're a firefighter, okay? Just tuck your mustache in and go about your business. That's kind of mean. I can't grow a mustache, so I'm a little bit envious of the mustache. But my point is, is that you'll go to like, um, like a sporting event, like a kid's baseball game or something, and the parking lot's just jammed full. And then all along that inner circle, all along the yellow curb fire lane, are just cars all parked. Now, I can forgive some of them because they're like, oh, you know, I didn't know any better. It was open. But when you see that big red truck with a firefighter sticker on it, it's like, you know better. How can you turn around and tell other people that they need to respect things like that for fire safety when you're parked right there. I would park three blocks. I have parked three blocks away before rather than park right there because I will never use the excuse of there was no other place to park. There's other places to park. Go park somewhere. Call your friend and have them shuttle you in. I don't care. I'm not going to park in a fire lane. But that's what you do as a Christian when you, you, you don't behave the way you should behave. People know. It's not like people don't know how Christians should behave. So if you're not behaving that way, there's going to be a good answer for it, right? The goal is obedience. The obedience is to honor God and bring him glory, not yourself. So you have to consider your motives. That's the kind of whole, you act like a Christian, but you've got to be careful because you want to act like a Christian that the Bible defines. You don't want to just be seen like a Christian on the outside. Because the glory you're trying to bring is the glory to God, not glory to yourself. It should never be this point where it's like, you know everybody's giving you attention for being such a good Christian and not giving God attention because of his great saving power. John chapter 14, verse 15. Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commandments. Again, Jesus, just clear, concise. If you love me, obey my commandments. Pretty easy. Luke chapter 11, verse 28. Jesus replied, but even more blessed are all who hear the word of God and put it into practice. And 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 and 11. God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. Do you have the gift of speaking? Then speak as though God himself were speaking through you. Do you have the gift of helping others? That's a good gift, helping others. Uh, do it with all your strength and the energy that God supplies. Then everything you do will bring glory to God through Jesus Christ. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. There's a little recipe and a formula for you. Use your gifts, even if it's just being helpful to others, to glorify God. That brings him glory. And the third one is this. Paul's letter, uh, to the, this, Paul's letter to these Christians in Rome is written to you also. It's applicable to your life also. It's fundamental. Romans chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. 
And you are included among the Gentiles who have been called and belong to Jesus Christ. I am writing to all of you in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his own holy people. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. One key theme in the whole book of Romans is that God has incorporated the Gentiles into the people of God as his holy people while remaining faithful to the promises that he had made to Israel in the Old Testament. He's not uh, forsaking the Jews. He still has promises he's given to the Jews. But he has a greater promise and a greater covenant that he's making with the Jews and now including the Gentiles. The idea that Paul would call the Gentiles God's holy people. I mean, this is like one of those phrases that you, you had set aside and used for Jews only. Because they were the chosen ones. Those were God-holy people. So the fact that he's using that now to speak about the Gentiles is just further emphasizing the point that everybody has the opportunity to be a child of God and come to salvation through Jesus Christ. This important word choices. Now remember the Gentile Christians, right? They believed, uh, those were believers that had little understanding of the Old Testament and the history of God's people. They only knew uh, what they knew was what just what was Jesus. And then you had the Jewish Christian believers who were caught up in the old, but maybe not fully wanting to accept that God's salvation was, uh, wasn't just for them now, and that their time served didn't make them more special. Because you realize that when, when, when you get saved, you get saved, if you got saved 20 years ago and somebody gets saved now, you're completely justified in the same manner before Christ. It doesn't matter that you've done 20 years longer. Now, it don't matter for your sanctification. Hopefully, you should be 20 years further ahead. But the reality is you're both saved. You both get to go to heaven. doesn't matter if you came in the 11th hour or the first hour. Noodle on that one and think about works versus grace. But the gospel can really only be good news if the message of Christ's redemption is a continuation of God's promises in the Old Testament. It all works together for the salvation story. So you can't just be a modern day Christian and only look at the New Testament. Because everything Jesus was and Jesus did fulfilled what happened in the Old Testament. What would be the purpose of bringing a Savior to save people if there wasn't an Old Testament? How do you understand the power and the massiveness of Jesus Christ coming to save your sins if you don't understand the history of God and his people? It would just lose all its power. It'd be, it'd be almost like, well, yeah, I mean, that's great. I, I just found out I'm a sinner, so that's great. So uh, salvation, let's do it. Without understanding, that's why it's so amazing for the Jews at this time to have had that history and legacy and understand it and then come to saving grace through Jesus Christ. I mean, imagine how mighty and extreme that is. Think about in terms of... Uh, someone's salvation story, how much more meaningful it is for someone who has lived a really hard life and gone through a lot of hard times and how precious they find that salvation versus someone who has, you know, according to our culture, not done a whole lot. So how does that person who feels like they have not done a whole lot understand their salvation at the same passionate, heart-wrenching level that someone who's done a bunch of awful things would have? Because you understand the gravity of what Jesus Christ came and did. Because you understand the history of God's people and all the things that God's tried to get you to this place. If you don't truly understand that on your best day you are a wretched, horrible sinner, then how can you understand the grace of God in your life? 
Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament, not eliminated. The good news is that the gospel rescues people from the penalty of sin and death and transforms lives, and it's available to all of us. It doesn't matter how you started life. What matters is your faith right now and moving forward. There is no disqualification point before salvation. Now, if you want to take that salvation and you want to wring it through the mud and act like you don't believe it and do whatever the heck you want with it, then yeah, you're going to have some issues. But you could have the, the craziest life possible before salvation and it's all wiped clean. All wiped clean that moment you give your life to Jesus Christ. It matters about your faith now and where you're going moving forward. When somebody says, when did you get saved? This morning. How long have you been saved? Since right now. I'm saved now. Because that's the important part, right? Second <clears throat> Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. For God saved us and called us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserved it, but because that was his plan from the beginning of time. To show us his grace through Christ Jesus. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 through 15. Since God chose you to be his... Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must, must clothe yourself with tender-hearted mercies, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. You, know, you want to know what it's supposed to look like to be a Christian? Clothe yourself in tender-hearted mercies, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. You will stand out. I guarantee it. Make allowances for each other's fault and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you. So you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourself with love, which binds us together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. Unity is in order because all believers are in the same boat and equal in the eyes of the Lord. So whether these were Jewish believers or Gentile believers where they started, they need to be unified in Christ because they're all starting on equal footing. So whether you were raised in the church or you came to the church late in life, uh, it's interesting how many divisions we have in our society and our culture right now, and they don't necessarily go across uh, spiritual lines. So let's, like for instance, you could have fully sold out Christians who love Jesus who are Democrats and ones who are Republicans. You have ones that wear their masks and ones that don't wear their masks, right? You have ones that are in a church like this that's non-denominational, and you have some that are in churches like a Lutheran church or something that's very liturgious, and they have all these um, uh, uh, rules and regulations and guidelines, and everything's really formulated and organized. You could even love Jesus and be wholly uh, sold out and saved and be a Catholic, so you take all of that and you look at what the Jews and the Gentiles were like at the time and how they had these divisions and things they had to bear, barriers they had to overcome in their minds. It's no different than where we're at today. We're sitting in this room and there's a variety of opinions and a variety of things that people would say, nope, this is what I think is the right thing for right now. But the reality is, is we all are united in the fact that we love Jesus and we believe what the Bible says is true. No matter where we came from, no matter what Facebook post we're going to hit like on tonight after we leave, right? We're united in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. 
For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when, in his own body on the cross, he broke down the walls of hostility that separated us. I think he can do that for any of those categories, don't you? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no division in the church. Rather, be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. And the last verse, Psalms 133, 1. How wonderful and pleasant it is when brothers live together in harmony. The message to all of us is to return to the fundamentals of faith. And let go of those things that divide us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Why don't you bow your heads with me? It's a great message for the opportunity to have you give your life to Christ for the first time today. You just sat here and heard for 40 minutes what the gospel is, what the good news is, and how it applies to you in your life. So if, if you want to give your life to Jesus Christ today for the first time, you've never done it before, but you want to say you're a sinner and needs a Savior, you want to have Jesus be that Savior and repent of your sins and turn away um, from your, your old life, if that's you today and you want to give your life to Jesus Christ, I want to give you the opportunity. So if that's you today, I want you to just raise your hand at me so we can pray with you that you want to give your life to Christ for the first time today. Now, if you're, near, you're here in this place, and today was just a big, fat reminder uh, that you need to reflect on uh, where your actions lie with where your words lie and the fundamentals of your Christian faith and needing to uh, review that and get back on track, then, then I'm glad you were here in this place. Let's pray. Lord God, we love you so much. We just thank you for the opportunity to study your word and learn it and be redirected and corrected by you, Lord God. We give you glory tonight. We give you praise. Let, let your word never leave our minds as we leave this place so that others would see you in us and come to know your saving grace for themselves. In your holy name, Lord. Amen. Amen. Any announcements? No. Go get your kids. Hey, we want to thank you so much for being online with us today. I want to remind you, if you're not a follower on Facebook, please like our page on YouTube. Please subscribe. Follow us on Twitter. Tell all your friends. Continue to watch online. We thank you for watching. We love you so much. Have a great day.